You're listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. Bonjour. Bonjour. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. Oh. There goes the baker with his tray like always. <laughs> I like that. That was a little Beauty and the Beast reference for okay. those of you who... You know, it's funny because I thought to myself, the cadence, the melody, I'm like, that feels like an OG animated song. And oh, sure, it is. You were great. right. You, your OG animated song instincts <laughs> are... <laughs> Those are my favorite instincts. Spot <laughs> on. I'm going to say they, they were great. Those, the like the ability... To write songs for those old films. Oh, yeah. Excellent. So good. When Abby watches those movies, I will have songs stuck in my head for weeks. Yeah. Like that song. Or the Gaston song. I think that's one of my favorites of so all good. time. It's, it's so, so good. good. No one. <laughs> yeah. Just I love it. Excellent. So anyway, mm. doing well? Doing Hanging in there? pretty well. Pretty well. Mm, yeah. Not much to complain <laughs> that's about. Say, that's I could. <laughs> If I tried. We could. Don't we? need to, though. Don't need to. It's no. non-essential. No need to be like Cora and the gang. <laughs> exactly. Get swallowed up uh, by the earth like yeah. lunch. Pretty low on my list, actually. That's excellent. How about so, you? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good other than the, you know. Actually, no, I'm just, I'm just uh-huh. good. Uh, I'm was that going to be an impending winter comment? Because it was. Near I'm, I'm, but people are going to get tired of it. They're going to be like, oh, my gosh. There's Josiah talking about winter again. So our autumn fans are chafing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. Okay. I enjoy pumpkin-flavored everything. Oh, my so gosh, I'm so excited. I'm really into that. I love every, every detail, every single thing that comes along with autumn, except Thanksgiving. Mm, I do enjoy Thanksgiving. So. It is anathema to me. That is, I mean, but you don't even like turkey. So. I, uh, if it's a deli sliced meat, I can put it on a sandwich with toast. But it's pretty nice, man. But other than that, turkey and stuffing is. I'm not like a feast person, which I hate to say in a Christian circle. You know what I mean? Because there's a whole oh, we have a bunch of, of feast feasts. days. I'm gonna be like, <laughs> like you know. Like, heaven I, i'm not really i'm not really feast. a feast person lord feast per- you didn't make me a feast person did you know that um he's yeah. gonna correct that <laughs> deficiency when you get to heaven. <laughs> um yeah so for for a holiday that is primarily social and feast oriented i'm like this is two things that i am not about mm. i like to kind of do a drive-by you know what i mean yeah i'm aware of it i'll have a this or a that and then um where, where did ethan go he gave us an irish goodbye <laughs> And that's what happens. That's usually that's my method for navigating things. You did attend our Friendsgiving last year, mine and Morgan's. That is true. The Friendsgiving that we had, that is, which I feel like yeah. it's a different vibe. It's it is a different vibe. And it wasn't vibe on Thanksgiving because it's not forty-seven people. <laughs> you know what I mean? That makes a difference. That is true. We couldn't fit that many people into our house or park that yeah. many people on our street. Oh man, yeah. But anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I do enjoy that. That's like my last. No, I take that back. Advent is. Ironically, my favorite season on the church calendar. Which is an inconvenient season. For Inconveniently in. <laughs> set in December. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, oh, it is man. what it is. So, yeah. anyway, those are some bits of, you know, the Christian life there. And, yeah. uh, you know, you beat up on the feasts, I beat up on the winter. And <laughs> a lot of people beat up on the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Oh, all the time. All the time. I've heard enough of that. What in the heck? Uh, yeah, no, one of the things I want to say, at least in the. Really, just in the modern American context, yeah, in sure. certain places, it's not everywhere. But one thing that does get beat up on in those contexts is that doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, mm. which it strikes is, me as a pretty central dealio. There, I mean, it is pretty central, you know, big, it, big deal. Which is, you know, it is unfortunate that people want to beat up on it so much. But this is the doctrine, by the way, that states that Christ, in his death on the cross, bore the penalty 
hence the term penal, as in penalty, for our sins and paid our debt in our place or in our stead, hence substitutionary. Mm -hmm. So that's what that that term means, which seems pretty basic. You know, you read passages like 1 Peter 2.24, which says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Mm -hmm. Should be pretty familiar, pretty sound to most of our listener base. Yes. I would think. Yes. This is pretty basic it is christianity a bit of a 101 <laughs> it is it really is a bit of a 101 but lots of people have trouble with this idea and depending on where they fall on the spectrum the reason they may have trouble with it is because they have issues because it seems to well i mean it doesn't seem it clearly implies that god has great wrath towards sin that needs to be dealt with or they're concerned about how god can be morally just to impute sins upon his son that his son didn't commit, or that it somehow promotes an unhelpfully violent framework for understanding our restoration to God. So those are all problems that people have with it. And I mean, I can be sympathetic to those to a degree. Like I can sure, see how you could, yeah. depending on how you read the doctrine, you could be like, oh yeah, I can see how you might you might have some concern to that. Hmm. I can I can be sympathetic to that entirely. But you know, it's, yeah. it's pretty essential. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to read your Bible and get around it. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I mean, I'm not personally in love with the uh, the violence and severity edge. Sure, yeah. I mean, well, no, yeah. That's it. There's like no one should be like, oh yes, oh, violence, death. Yeah, and, you know, like that's okay. Like, it's a bit, calm it down. It's a bit much. And and I think I even kind of take maybe I'm maybe I'm stretching this, but I, I I tend to take comfort in the fact that it seems like Jesus was not particularly stoked either. No, he was not asking repeatedly. <laughs> made this cup pass. Right. It's a hard thing. I don't yeah. think that's a controversial take no no <laughs> but it's also a very familiar thing at this point in in my life it, it's hard to view it with fresh eyes yeah and i completely get all that that makes sense and i think that's exactly right i think the problem for a number of folks is that the result of those issues and objections lead a number of otherwise professing christians to reject penal substitutionary atonement wowzer which then, you know, raises a lot of questions. It sure. does. Like, there are a lot of things you can't count for now, at least in any sensible or reasonable way. Yeah, it's um, a tough Jenga block to remove. It is, it is. And then they have to then, of course, demonstrate that this is a concept entirely foreign to both the scriptures and church history until the medieval era, because you get very clear articulations of it hmm. in the medieval era that are unavoidable. So then they have to try to argue this stuff. And, and if any of our listeners spend any amount of time reading or listening to theological banter on this topic outside of this podcast, you've probably come across some of this discussion or heard people talk about these terms in such a way, because it is something that gets talked about semi-frequently as wow. far as like God's wrath and okay. how that all works and how the atonement did what it did for us, etc. So the like the it's foreign to the scriptures argument feels harder to push when you're pulling this language from the scriptures. Yeah. As soon as people start down that track, like if I have conversations with someone, yeah. they say, I'm like, you're already, like, we're off to a bad start. <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm guessing like the loophole is like, oh, it, the concept was inserted in the framework by, I would assume leaders and translators, mm -hmm. which is, it, it seems like there are easier arguments to make if you don't like it. There, there because are you could be like, arguments. hey, look, it's the text that came before those people. Yeah. It's right there too. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would rather just hear you say, I'm not fond. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, well. Yeah, which, again, you know, I can understand someone saying, like, this is really difficult for me. Sure. Yeah. And it's just, I'm uncomfortable with it. And also, I'm like, there are lots of things about Scripture that, <laughs> again, like, if God didn't disturb us in yeah. some ways, it's like, 
you're really not worshiping God, you know? Like, if you're, you know, as we've quoted many times on this podcast, uh, Voltaire, you know, God made man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, if your God doesn't disturb you at all. What if you become comfortable with Yeah, that? like, oh, uh, you know, I don't know about that. So, that said, though, what I'd be interested in doing in this podcast is actually twofold, very briefly. This is going to be the most rudimentary sketch. <laughs> not at all in-depth, okay? If you're really interested in this, you need to go do some more reading. But just kind of give you a lay of the land. The first is offer a biblical and historical defense of this doctrine to show that it is there. Because it really is, I mean, it's not the only thing to the atonement, but without this, the atonement falls apart. Like, we have no mechanism for being restored to God yeah. if this if this piece isn't there. But on that note, I also want to try and make clear that um, Christ's atoning work involves more than just penal substitution. Because I think sometimes people think that's all it is, yeah. and that's all they focus on. And there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. And there are parts of it that are more central than others, such as penal substitution. But there's a lot happening that affects our salvation and restoration to God. So here we go. First, as you have pointed out several times, this is a biblical concept. I yeah. just you cannot. <laughs> if you're going to honestly read your Bible, you can't get around it. Sure. We saw that in First Peter. But we also see it in places like Romans 3, 24 to 25, where Paul says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the key term there being propitiation, mm -hmm. which is a word that just tells us that Christ's death means the removal of God's wrath. He propitiated, he appeased God's wrath. Which again, you get that conceptually in Romans 1 through 3. Like Paul is spending those first three chapters, all he's basically doing is trying to say, all men and women, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, are under the curse of sin and therefore under the wrath of God. And that is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And then he answers, how is that problem dealt with? Right there in Romans, Romans 3, 24 to 25. Oh, Christ appeased it by his sacrifice, by his blood. Yeah. So he removed that wrath by bearing our sin, our curse in our place through the shedding of his blood. But we also see this quite clearly, even in the Old Testament, in passages like Isaiah 53. Like that, is, that is such a lodestar text for this doctrine and for everything having to do with what Christ accomplished yeah. on the cross. Because you see there, God says that his servant, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He says, our iniquity was laid on him. He makes an offering for our guilt. He bears the sins of many, etc. So you have all that going on. Now, at this point, someone might object, that's all well and good, but the church fathers didn't see penal substitution in the Bible. They never use the term or even talk about it. Okay, Which is minute. the point where you, yeah, <laughs> it's like... Uh, there are a couple problems with that. <laughs> yeah. First of all, let's just say, just to get this clear, the church fathers were not infallible or inerrant anyway, right? Good. I think some people... Yeah, good call. And I can probably sometimes be guilty of this because I love the church fathers, really love reading, patristics, all that stuff. Got a big fathers fan here. That's, we do. Big fathers fan. And you can think, oh, well, just because the church fathers said it, that yeah. means, or yeah. didn't say it, that means that's the way it is. Like, mm, no, 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 no. <laughs> they were neither infallible nor inerrant. And they were very clear to point that out. They were yeah. like, we're... You know, good caution there. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, I mean, come on here. But second of all, when I read or hear objections like this and I'm feeling charitable, my assumption is that the person leveling it has only read snippets of the fathers. Like they, you know, read someone who was like, let me quote a father here and just without any other context or anything. Or they've just read someone else who's claimed that they've read the fathers and then claimed that the fathers didn't believe in penal substitution. That feels very likely. Yeah. A lot of times I'm like, sure, I yeah, sure heard like, this on yeah, a podcast. I did. That's the way I heard it. <laughs> Which is, alas, simply not true. I'm going to perhaps be guilty of almost committing the same sin that I'm accusing others of. But you can pick up a copy of, for example, to give you one brief one here, Athanasius, writing in the 4th century. So he's writing in the 300s AD. He's got this great little book called On the Incarnation. Lovely. Mm -hmm. A magnificent work. It's short, easy. You could read it in one setting if you really wanted to. 
And here's what he says early on. For his it was, that is Christ's, once more both to bring the corruptible to incorruption and to maintain intact the just claim of the Father upon all. For being word of the Father, and above all, he alone of natural fitness was both able to recreate everything and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be ambassador for all with the Father. Yeah. He says it right there. <laughs> well, hey. like, in other words, you can't just word search penal substitution and, and try to make your argument. No. You, you actually have to pretty sincerely, like, sift through the concepts presented because that's, I mean, as far as I can understand it, the exact same concept with a different vocabulary. Right. Which, if you're looking to make a bad faith argument, it's a minefield yeah. <laughs> because it is right there under your nose. Yeah, and I do find this goes back to a podcast we recorded recently on tips for reading, Yeah, which is that you have to engage and try to understand the concepts and the meaning and everything else in the argument that an author is trying to make with their words. Mm. You can't just say they did or didn't use this word <laughs> or this term and say right. that, therefore, they didn't believe in X, Y, or Z concept, or they did believe in X, Y, or Z concept. Words have semantic range, mm. and concepts are not necessarily married to specific terms, yeah. which is what we're seeing right here, right? Exactly. C.S. Lewis has a great example of this dynamic where he talks about in the 1950s or 40s, I can't remember which, the Anglican Church was looking at making changes to their prayer book to update the language, to make it more modern. Mm -hmm. And one of the lines that were going to change was, it was a prayer for magistrates, and they were saying, we pray that they may administer justice, and originally it said indifferently. May they oh. administer justice indifferently. And they were going to change it to, may they administer it impartially. Okay? Oh, that's interesting. Well, so Lewis had a friend who was a priest, and this priest, his congregation was a, mostly a bunch of rural farmers. And the priest was like, I don't know about these language changes. And so he went and asked a farmer or a sexton or somebody in his congregation, hey, um, what do you think of this word change? When I say, may the magistrates administer justice indifferently, how do you take that? And he's like, oh, they administer it fairly. Like, they're not, like, distinguishing between, they're not biased, they're fair. Yeah. He's like, what about impartially? He's like, oh, I have no idea what that means. Impartial. <laughs> like, impartial oh, justice. No. What do you mean? So, like, but... I think what's funny about that is I get impartial. I'm yeah. like, oh, impartially. Yeah, like you're not, again, it, you're That not. sounds chiefly fair. Yeah. And differently sounds emotionally detached. Right. So point is, is again, you have to be aware not only of the semantic range of words, but how different periods of time and different people groups use those words yeah. and what they're trying to communicate. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, you get that right here in Athanasius. You get an understanding of Christ's atoning work that doesn't use the precise words, precise terms that we use today, but that's to be expected. Mm -hmm. Like you just, you have to see if the concept is there, which leads nicely to the next part of the discussion, because Athanasius doesn't only focus on the substitutionary character of Christ's death. That's not the only thing he focuses on, not even in that statement, because he also looks at what we would call the recapitulatory character. Okay. There's a fun, yeah, which word should we, should we change that word? <laughs> um, but you notice he said Christ was able to recreate everything. Yeah. So he's not just saying, oh, Christ bore our sins and suffered on our behalf. He also, in his work on the cross, came to bring life and immortality to light, as the Apostle Paul says, mm -hmm. which he did, ironically, by his death. And that's another piece of the atonement. So when we're considering this, we get at least three other major foci in the atonement discussion. And there are a lot more than this, by the way. I want to make that clear. Like, there are so many different terms and theories for... When we're talking about atonement theories, by the way, we're really discussing what mechanically did the atonement accomplish. Like, when Christ died on the cross, what happened and how did he do it? Sure. How did that happen? 
So you get a lot of different names and a lot of different theories, but three of the major ones that come up frequently are Recapitulation, Christus Victor, and Moral Exemplar. Those they, are the three you get. They at least kind of sound like what they're saying. Yeah. That's, and that's you nice. Know, you get a, get a pretty, you know, fairly self-explanatory. Are they mutually exclusive or do they work in concert? Well, so that's the thing. Okay. Okay. And this is where I sometimes tend to get frustrated Uh, in these discussions. So like if, you know, I'm having a a friendly but vigorous conversation with someone who doesn't hold a penal substitution, like they want to reject it outright. They typically want to focus on saying there's one primary objective atonement theory, which is the same mistake that people who hold a penal substitution can hold to sometimes. They can say, well, like they focus on one thing, the exclusion of others. So to answer your question, no, these aren't mutually exclusive. Like they're more like a mosaic that forms this stained glass window of the atonement yeah. than like, oh, you get this one blank white canvas and we're just going <laughs> to that's it. This is up on it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like it's so like it's more dimensional. Yes. Yes. And typically in those discussions, you know, like I was talking to someone a while back and they were like, well, you know, Augustine didn't believe in substitution. He didn't believe in a substitutionary atonement. He he held strictly to the I think they said it was Christus Victor. I'm like, OK, I mean, he did hold to Christus Victor, but Again, in Augustine, you also see the substitutionary motif pop up many times. Like, sure. either you like you haven't read Augustine, or you haven't read him charitably, or you've read someone who said they read Augustine and said they didn't see it in there. Yeah. So that said, they yeah they all saw these as contributing to one another, not mutually exclusive. So I actually think when I come back from my sabbatical, we'll probably do an episode on each of these because I think it would be a worthwhile discussion. So okay. what's your appetite for that? You can come back to that. But briefly, just so you hopefully can see we're not making these things up and the church hasn't been making these things up. We do find these in the Bible. So recapitulation would show up in passages like Ephesians 2, 15 through 16, where Paul says, Jesus came that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, in place of Jew and Gentile. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So you get basically what recapitulation is saying is that Christ lived this perfect life he, actually to use another of Paul's terms, he is the new Adam. He's the second Adam. He always obeys where the first Adam failed, and therefore he lives the perfect human life. And in doing so, he provides the means for us to enter into a perfect new humanity, which one day we'll fully realize in the new creation. But even now, we are beginning to realize in the church and in the reconciliation that he offers us. So that's that. And then Christus Victor is the idea that Christ died to give us victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's pretty straightforward. Great one. I feel like that's Like, people talk about that without even realizing it. Like, of course we talk about that. Exactly. And so, I mean, you get that right almost exactly in those words in 1 John 3, 8, where he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, sin and death, right? So you get it right there. And then finally, you get the moral exemplar, which means that Christ does provide an ethical and imitative template for how we as Christians ought to live our lives. So, you know, again, 1 Peter 221, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So actually, this is a common fault of moralistic modern evangelical churches is that Christ is only your moral exemplar. Like he's the, you know, you read the Bible only as ethical template, which again, it is. Peter says, Jesus provided an example we're supposed to follow. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we see that in the atonement. But it's not the only thing. You can see how if you take any one of these by themselves, you can get weird mutations yeah. of the Christian life. It that, leaves like some pretty notable deficits. Yeah. So like if you have um, like some 
you can become very easily word of faith or prosperity minded if Christus Victor is the only thing you think about. Yeah. If all you're thinking is Christ came to give us victory over <laughs> sin and death, and you don't take in mind the moral exemplar yeah. facets, the recapitulation, or the substitutionary part, yeah, you're not going to be thinking about anything else. Like suffering, having to endure pain for the sake of Christ, yeah, that's not part of the program. So you can see how all these contribute and give us a full picture of what Christ did for us on the cross. Because mm-hmm. I also think that's interesting. Like, you really, how can you limit what the Son of God did by dying to one thing? Like, it's just crazy. Like, there's just so much more to it. So, obviously, we couldn't cover all this in depth. But if we helped you to see that all these different foci of the atonement appear in Scripture, and that penal substitution in particular is neither foreign to the Bible or the early church, we did what we set out to do with this brief podcast. Yeah. You can read more in depth if you want. And, uh, you know, like I said, we'll probably do a whole episode on each one of those when we come back. Give we us will return to with more. Hit that up there. So thank you as always for listening. If you have any questions on this or any other topic, you can email us as always at podcast at horizonschurch.net or you can interact with us on social media. And if you did find this helpful and you want to leave us an honest five-star review in that Apple podcast platform. Love it. We would love that. You can outline all the different theories of why this was helpful to you. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, of course. Thank you as always for listening and we will catch you next time. Mm